0: to express a very happy Father's Day to you dads out there. I got a really clever meme from one of my kids this morning when I got to church. It had an old panel Chevy station wagon on it, and it said, Have a happy Father's Day, or else I'll pull this car over right now. (laughs) My kids get me. Well, we are glad you're here on this Father's Day. Thank you for worshiping with us on this special day. We're getting into part two of something I started two weeks ago because our family traveled last week, and so Tom filled in for me. And because I had the worship service tuned in at my kid's house, I was able to see all the people he was not named after. Good job on that, Tom. I appreciate it. And it was also good to find out some things about Thomas that I did not know. very instructive. But I started the Oreo cookie uh, message series. It's a two-parter. Mike thought to give equal time, perhaps we should call it Mark's Hydrox today or something. I don't know. But uh, we'll just go with the Oreo so you understand that there's a sort of a sandwich approach here because there's a cookie on one side, another cookie on the other side, and the creamy filling in the middle. And that's what Mark's literary style does for us in Mark chapter 5 in these two stories that are all mashed together as one story. And it's a very tasteful story. Not just because I like Oreos, but it's tasteful because he gives us a real clue uh, in some very gripping storytelling fashion of true events that also reveal the Father's heart to us. Which is why I thought it was great timing that we're arriving at part two on Father's Day. Uh, When Mark spoke in my place just a few weeks ago, you had mentioned the same thing. It was on Memorial Day. And he said, I didn't know it was going to wind up on Memorial Day, but it was the perfect time for that. God seems to be doing that a lot lately. And I like it when he does that. He seems to give us what we need exactly when we need it, and he's lining things up so that we can see that his hand is at work through his word. So we started looking at this passage two weeks ago. Starting at verse 21, we saw the woman who started to come up and interrupt the first story because the first story was Jairus who was begging Jesus to come and heal his daughter who was at the point of death. That was the first cookie And then the lady's interruption, the lady who had had a medical issue for 12 years, was unable to be healed by doctors, and she had expended all of her money. And she was trying to be so secretive about that that she didn't even want Jesus to know she was there. So she just touched the hem of his robe, and she was instantly healed. So that's the creamy filling. And we're going to pick up with just a few more observations about the creamy filling and this lady before we move on to the rest of that cookie, the second cookie. And then we're gonna just ratchet back, uh, all the way back and look at the whole cookie for a few poignant uh, principles that we can extract from this whole passage, 21 through 43. As we've already seen a number of times in Mark's gospel, Jesus is very clearly displaying not only his compassion, but his authority. He's displayed his authority over people, but also over demons. He had crossed all the way over to Gennesaret on the eastern side of the lake, cast out a legion of demons, thousands of demons from this one poor guy. The guy tried to get in the boat and come back with him because he wanted to follow the man who had made him whole. Jesus says, no, you need to stay here and share your testimony with the rest of these folks because you're the only one who can do it well. That was Gentile territory. comes back across to the other side of the lake, This thing is taking place, and once again, Mark wants to see the authority and compassion perfectly blended together in Jesus, who is representing the Heavenly Father to us in a tangible way. Uh, We see in verse 33 that there's something very tender about Jesus' response to this woman. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. She didn't want to be found out. She had been unclean ceremonially because of bleeding. And so she would have had to touch many people on the way to get to Jesus, knowing that she was probably very embarrassed and might have been cast out away from them because then they would think, well, now you've made us unclean. But Jesus instead meets her with such compassion and he actually even says, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. He knew that she needed that kind of affirmation. In Arizona, where I grew up, I have told you before that my dad had a very limited Spanish vocabulary. Uh, He wouldn't even say it was the kind of thing he could carry on a real conversation. He just had a a few words here and there. That's the extent of my Spanish knowledge as well. I know just enough to get me in deep trouble. (laughs) Because if I greet somebody and I have an accent, they think that I know Spanish and they'll start jibber-jabbering away and I just have to go. Uh, Sorry. But one of the things I heard my dad say, especially to my sister, My sweet sister Kathy, when she would have a boo boo and fall down and hurt her knee or something like that, he would say, Oh, pobrecita, which means poor dear. Now, you can say that and mean it that way. You can be very genuine with that, but tone makes a difference. And sometimes, if he felt that she was kind of milking something for all she could get and it was crocodile tears and she didn't really, it wouldn't hurt that badly, he might go, Oh, pobrecita. (laughs) It makes a difference. And I think the reason Jesus chose a specific word the way he did because we wanted to hear both the word and the tone, and he's doing something endearing. Now, when my sister really needed real help and empathy, my dad would say, oh, mijita, which is a little bit of an abbreviation of a couple of Spanish words. Hijita, which means little girl, and mijita, they shortened that, which means my little girl. It would be like saying, oh, my poor baby. My little sweet precious baby girl. And that was a beautiful thing to hear me say, or to hear my dad say, because I knew he was really genuine and he was trying to meet her at her point of felt need. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He chooses his words so carefully to make sure that she understands he's going way beyond just rabbi to pupil. There's something very special about the relationship he is indicating that he desires by saying daughter. So, He's using this word on purpose. It's like he's saying, you matter to me. I see you, and I care about you. You belong in my family. Whatever beautiful things my Father has in store for us, I want you to be a part of that as well. That's what Jesus offers to all of us. I know it's kind of hard for some people, especially in our modern culture, to think about God being endearing to us that way and loving us that way, especially for men. You know, here we are in Father's Day, and we're used to expressing our love by going out and revving up some engines or chopping wood or using a welder, you know. Let's go shoot some guns and let's do guy stuff. That's how we show love. Like, yeah, I love you, man. Ooh, don't use that mushy stuff on me. But God does things in a way that every person needs, and he demonstrates his love for people at a point where they can understand exactly what he means. And God loves you men that way. He loves you in a good, strong, manly, masculine way as well, but he does love you, and he cares enough about you to want you to be a precious son to him as well. We all have distortions. We have to live with distortions about authority figures, including fathers. I've read a lot of stuff in just the last couple of months, and there's an awful lot of people that they either didn't know their dad at all, he was just completely absent, whether he was gone for work all the time Or there was a divorce early on in a child's life, so they never really knew their father. Or perhaps they did know the dad, but wasn't a great example of an endearing love kind of a dad. We have to kind of push that aside as we look at passages like this and say, let's try not to import our distortions onto God because that's awfully easy to do. We need to push aside our misconceptions about him and try not to force our humanness onto this deity, we need to see what the Bible tells us about the real God and when we really want to see what he's like we get to see him through Jesus Christ so that's where we're starting to see the heart of God, so what we first learn in this story is that God, our heavenly father sees us as beloved children I've heard some people say oh, I don't pray that much because I just don't think God wants to bother with the little things, he's got much bigger things to worry about You know, there's world hunger and there are pandemics and there are ugly regimes of leadership in different countries. He's so busy with that stuff. Why would he want to bother with my little stuff anyway? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because that's his nature. It's God's nature to love creation and the crowning achievement of creation is us. He loves his children and he wants us to be his children and to know that he does love us that way. He cares about all the little stuff. When I take some of my prayer walks, I just dump it all out there for him. And he still keeps taking it. I have never heard him answer back and say, would you quit bugging me with this little stuff? He never says that. He's always accessible and always available. I think that it's good to know that sometimes when we're in those down times, and we we all have them, it would be good to look at this passage in Mark 5 and maybe even find a place where you can be alone. Maybe go for a walk. Go to your backyard, sit down if the weather's good, and just talk to God out loud and say, Lord, I know from scriptures that you do care about me. I know that. I haven't been feeling it lately, but I do know that, and I want to thank you for caring about me the way you do. Thank you. That's just speaking the truth. That's one of the things that I come away with each time we get to sing and we get to acknowledge truths through music. That's a powerful part of worship. And I'm so glad that we get to remind ourselves Children of Israel were constantly in need of being reminded who they were in relationship with God. We need the same. We need it regularly. So if you're feeling discouraged, just speak that truth out loud. God, I know that you care about me. How do I know it? I know that you gave your whole life for me because Jesus died on the cross for me. That's how I know. He cemented the deal. So let's look at this one verse 34 in this passage as we wind up looking at the creamy filling in the middle. Your faith has made you well. I've told you that there are many wolves out there, and it's my job as a shepherd to try to steer you away from bad teaching and things that are not biblically correct because it's dangerous. And there are some, quite frankly, dangerous teachings where people will extract one line from a whole passage like the one we're looking at and build a whole theology based on that one line. A lot of people do it with this one. Your faith has made you well. And if we're so caught up in trying to turn this into a formula for physical temporary healing we can really miss that it's not all about us <laughs> it's about jesus christ and who he is his authority and his compassion but his aim is to prepare us for eternal healing so as i preached before can he still heal of course he can yes i have a friend that he was in my church when i was a part-time music minister in arizona finishing up college Tom is his name, another Tom. Not the Tom that preached for you last week. And he was a very talented young musician, plays guitar. He still does that, goes into nursing home. He does music therapy. And it's amazing. He has these great stories that he'll post about people awakening from being semi-comatose, and they'll start singing along with him for hymns that they've known since they were little. And he's such a minister. That's a great minister's heart. But Tom was stricken with MS. And for several years, he was so seriously debilitated that he thought basically his life of productivity was over. And then in a worship service, somebody said, Tom, I feel really led for us to pray for you today. He didn't even seek it out. He said, well, what do you want to pray for? And they said, well, healing. And he's thinking, well, that's very kind. But, you know, when somebody says that to us, we're thinking, well, that's very, very nice. But we might not be thinking but I really fully expect something to happen. So even though he said he only had the little faith of a grain of mustard seed, something powerful did happen, and within a day, every symptom was gone. He said, I can't explain it other than the power of God, an answer to humility of prayer of people even more faith-filled than I was at the time, and he's been doing that for years now. I think it's been over a decade since he's claimed full healing because God still is in the business of healing. Now, he may be one example, but we can't use that one example to build our whole theology, particularly when we look at all the rest of Scripture because there are other times when Paul would have to leave somebody behind because they weren't finished getting over an illness, and he said, you can join us later. There are other times when we can see that sometimes, even though we pray for something, God sometimes says, no, not yet. Sometimes he just says, no, period, and sometimes he says, yes. So we have to be careful not to grab this one passage and extrapolate from that that it's always God's desire in every case to heal every time we ask for physical healing. If you carry that out to its extreme, then that means none of us would ever die. Right? Every time I'm going to pray, I'm going to claim healing. So we'd be 400 years old, you know, we would reach Methuselah and beyond. And we know that's not going to happen. So What I'm saying is we have to have a balanced approach to that and understand that we don't need to make this out of context and turn it into something that shouldn't be. What we do see, though, is that this lady's faith did inspire other people. We have to go ahead just into the next chapter, and we can take a quick glimpse into that. Because in 656, Mark says, Whenever he went, he meaning Jesus, into villages, cities, or countrysides, and he wrote this particular thing after the incident with the woman who had touched the hem of Jesus' garment, they, meaning the people in these villages, would bring their sick out to him, and they would beg him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe, and all who touched him were healed. How would they have known to beg him to allow them to just touch the hem of his garment? I think it starts with this lady, quite frankly. I think it's fairly obvious that Mark is putting that out there for us which means that her testimony must have spread. It must have spread far and wide. So even though she didn't even want to be singled out, she didn't want to be in the spotlight at all. And yet, her faith testimony wound up encouraging a lot of others to place their faith in Jesus as well. Think of somebody you know. I want you to think to somebody specifically who's either alive now or that you knew, and maybe they're in heaven, who displayed faith at a time when they were personally suffering. Give it five seconds and think of somebody. Somebody come to your mind? you have that person in mind? I did this for myself, and I realized that some of the greatest testimonies that still inspire me today happen to people who are going through great trial. They weren't by people who are always overcoming and who are constantly challenged by things, but always overcame. They were people who were really suffering and had to claw their way up some very steep mountains, and yet they kept trusting Christ. Gloria Johnston is the person who came to my mind when I did that earlier this week. We knew her back at Packard Road Baptist Church, our sponsor church, now our sister church, and uh, she had cancer that made its way into one leg. She wound up having to be am- have that leg amputated. Dennis, you know a thing or two about that? She went through a few discouraging days, but she never lost her faith. And she kept proclaiming Christ to everybody who had come into her room. She was such a wonderful witness to those around her. And I felt so encouraged in my own faith because I would think, well, God, compared to what Gloria is going through, I don't have any reason to complain. And my complaints seem so tiny and petty compared to what she's going through. I kind of think that may be what was happening with this lady that Mark is writing about in the creamy filling version of that. Well, we're also gonna move on to the second cookie because we can know that Mark is giving us some very specific things to help us grow in our own faith and to see the Father's heart more clearly. 35 through 43 is the second cookie. The synagogue official's daughter had died by this point and we see that because we have some folks running from his house. Doesn't say how far they had to run. I can extrapolate by looking at a couple of things that I'll point out that it had to have been some distance and we'll see why in a moment. Verse 35, while he was still speaking to her, meaning Jesus still speaking to the woman who had been healed, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Now, have you ever noticed that there are some people who are just a little bit lacking in the tact area? They're just not the kind of people that you want to put into your hospital visitation ministry. These people would fit into that category. I have a feeling that if they had a spiritual gifts inventory that they could have taken back then, they would have not rated very high in the area of empathy or mercy showing because they didn't come and say, "Um, Mr. Jairus, sir, forgive us for interrupting. I'm so sorry. And would you like to have a seat? We have some difficult news to deliver for you right now. They didn't prepare him at all. They just came up there and said, your daughter's dead. They dumped it right out there. I've had that happen to me before. I was away in a different state for Thanksgiving one time years ago, and a friend of ours who was a a volunteer in our church at the time called me up on the phone, and I thought, oh, this can't be good if he's tracked me down and he's calling me all the way down here in this other state. And instead of building me up to prepare me for the fact that he had bad news to share, he just said, Clark, is that you? And I said, yes. And he says, Holly's dead. And, of course, your mind is just reeling and racing, and you're going, wait, what, what? Back up, Holly, Holly who? He didn't even give me the last name. And, and then he had to explain everything like that. Well, that was his emotions at work, I'm sure. But that had to have been jarring. I know the way I felt when that happened to me, and I can imagine that Jairus, who has faced his greatest fear, fearing that this daughter who was nigh unto death has in fact succumbed to death, it must have been awful for him. But again, we get to see from the crowd's perspective, from those who are looking on and the way that it made it into Mark's narrative here, that Jesus saw what was going on in Jairus' heart as well. How does Jesus respond? Verse 36, but Jesus overheard them. How can you not overhear that? And said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Or in another translation, just believe Now his greatest fear was being realized and so Jesus knew that and the first words out of his mouth, don't fear, don't be afraid. He's tremendously compassionate. So he can be authoritative and he demonstrates that including, in just a little while, demonstrating the authority over death itself. But right now he's demonstrating this wonderful empathy and compassion. He's perfectly balanced. guys. This is good stuff for us as we're trying to seek how to be dads. Perfectly balanced. There are times when we've got to be authoritative. I remember feeling like I felt terrible when my kids got old enough that they needed to be disciplined a lot. You know, they're so cute and wonderful and squishy when they're just brand new, and you just want to carry them around and display them to everybody like Simba, you know, look at my son, this person's going to be great someday. And then they turn two, and it's like you have this little demon child running around your living room, and you feel like that all day long, all you're doing is saying, no, 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 go to timeout, no, and you feel terrible. But we have to be authoritative. That's part of our role. That's part of our God-given role. And yet, we need to balance that with the compassion, too, that we need to know when to say, oh, pobrecita heat, come up here and sit on daddy's lap. Tell me about your boo-boo. How did you fall? And we need to continue learning how to be good, empathetic listeners even as they grow older. And I find that that's a tough balance to strike because my anger, the older I'm getting, I don't know if it's pandemic PTSD or if it's just being an old guy, but I find that little things trip my switch quicker than they used to, and I have to work on that. I have to be praying for God to reel that in and for me to get a longer fuse. And I don't like that when that happens. This is confession time. Dads, I hope that there are others out there so you don't leave me hanging. But I hope that you struggle with these things too, knowing that God is constantly working with us and we are a work in progress. So how does Jesus respond? He says, don't fear. And then he says, verse 37, he stopped the crowd, this particular crowd, the one around the woman, wouldn't let them continue and go to Jairus' house except the three inner circle guys, Peter, James, and John. That may sound familiar. That's because those are the guys that he allowed up under the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he's taking Peter, James, and John with him and Jairus to Jairus' house. Then there's a separate crowd, a new crowd that shows up over there, and these are the mourners. And we get to meet them in verses 38 and 39. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus, why does he keep referring to Jairus as the synagogue leader? He's making the point that this is somebody who's important, especially in the Jewish culture, so that people on the outside looking in would say, this is really unusual. Guys don't act like that. They don't fall on their face in front of a teacher and beg him to come to his house. This teacher must be really important. And so he only refers to him as Jairus a couple of times, and then from then on he keeps saying the synagogue leader or the official. So the cultural phenomenon of mourning was very demonstrative. Now, I know that you probably have been to enough funerals, some of you in this culture, to know that we uh, stayed English background or British background people tend to hold our feelings in as much as possible because we're afraid that people will see our breaking as a sign of weakness if we display our emotions a lot. There are some subcultures, and I'm not picking on anybody here, but a lot of people from the South and some people in the African-American communities that I've been to their funerals, they're much more demonstrative. I'm painting with a broad brushstroke. There are differences within each of those. But I think that there are some healthy things to learn from other cultures, including what they did back there. Now, this is anecdotal evidence. I don't have any psychological studies to back it up. But from 40 years of ministry and a lot of funerals, many more than I would care to have gone to, those who can get those feelings out quickly and be open about how they feel tend to make their way more quickly through the stages of grief And they tend to get over that more quickly and be healthier on the other side than people who suppress and push that stuff down. Now, that's just my anecdotal evidence. It would be interesting to see if psychology today has written anything about that. But that's what I've noticed. And in this phenomenon... We see that it's just mourning is really open, and they'll even hire people to come in and weep and wail, and they would have flutes that we read about in other passages, and they would play dirges, so that we would help just hype people up into this great expression of lament, because they understand the power of lament. We have all the emotions there for a reason, and by expressing it and getting it out, I guess it's probably not an appropriate one for Shrek to say, better out than in, but Emotionally, that's kind of where we are with that. It is better out than to suppress it. And he went inside. Jesus went inside, and he says, why all this commotion and weeping? I'm putting myself in that situation and thinking, who does this guy think he is coming in and telling me I shouldn't be weeping? We're doing what our culture says we're supposed to be doing. And he says, the child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Hmm. Again, if I'm in that situation today, 2022, in America, and I'm weeping and wailing and mourning because my relative has just passed away and the uh, morgue hasn't even come to pick up the body yet, and I'm just beside myself and somebody comes in, some teacher, and says, why are you carrying on that way? Your relative is only asleep. How am I going to react to that? I'm probably going to go... Somebody escort them quietly out to the outside and see if they need to sit down and have a drink of water. We would not take them seriously. And yet, some people will mistakenly say that this is, some liberal scholars will say, this is an indication that this girl had not actually died. Not the case. How do we know that? Well, it took long enough for them to get there, for them to call the mourners so that they could gather around, and they had been mourning for some time. And it took some time for those messengers to get all the way over to where Jairus was as well. So we know that she was actually dead. And Jesus says that she is asleep on purpose. He does that because he really wants to shock people. He wants to get their attention because he's trying to teach something. Everything Jesus does, he does on purpose, and he teaches through them. And he does that here too. So Jesus makes this specific crowd leave, verse 40. The crowd first laughed at him, I would imagine a lot of people today would laugh if somebody said what Jesus had said. They laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples, so just those five, with him into where the girl was lying. So was Jesus, what is the deal with him saying that she's only asleep? Was he trying to be ironic? Was he trying to be clever? That's not normally Jesus' teaching style. Was he being mysterious or dramatic Again, that's not his teaching style. Jesus does things on purpose, and he's teaching us truths about himself, and he's teaching a very powerful truth here that we need to grasp because it goes right to the heart of the gospel itself. We can see evidence that there's one other time in Scripture that I know of. I think, as far as I can tell, there's only these two times when Jesus refers to somebody as having fallen asleep, and that's in John chapter 11, Lazarus. After Lazarus has died, Mary, Martha, the sisters, people he knows well, he's been in their home, they send a message to him. He's in another nearby town. They say, our brother Lazarus is sick. Please come quickly. Just like Jairus had beseeched Jesus, come quickly. But Jesus on purpose says, no, he's only asleep. And his disciples, not really getting what he's trying to do yet because he's still trying to teach something and they don't get it. They say, well, Master, if, he, if he's only sleeping, then he's going to get better. Why should we go down there? We're going to put your life and our lives in jeopardy because when we went back there last time, people weren't happy with us. Jesus said, no, let me be clear about what I'm saying here. I'm paraphrasing. He says, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad he is for your sakes because now you will really believe. He says, now it's time for us to go. So he waits on purpose to go down there, but he's going to teach something, and he has said that Lazarus is only sleeping. Very interesting that both these times... He uses that specific phrase. When Jesus does something twice, it's like when your mother wants to get your attention because you're doing something she has told you you're not supposed to do, and she uses both your names. You know, Galen, Clark, Cawthorn, the second. When Jesus says something twice, or if he reiterates a a truth twice, there's purpose there as well, and he's always purposeful. So what is it that we're trying to find from that? We're going to find out. Why does he confuse the people by referring to people as dead by saying they are asleep? Because this is something for Christians we need to grasp. From our Christian viewpoint, knowing what we know about Jesus, now that we're on the other side of the cross, knowing that he paid the penalty for sin, conquered death once and for all time, was resurrected physically, appeared to many witnesses, then for us, death is sleep. That's huge. That's at the heart of the gospel. Death for us is merely sleep, and it's not metaphoric. This is not an analogy. It is literally as though, yes, we fall asleep in these earthly tents, but we awaken in heaven, just like Jesus to the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It's sleep for us. It's not as scary, is it? Two of my own relatives, I've shared this openly with you that, I was there and got to see one of them present with my own mother. The other, I wasn't in Arizona at the time, but my mother was there and said that one of my grandparents reached upward as though they were reaching, striving for something. And they were so peaceful moments before their physical body expired. It was as though they were so expectant and eager to go into that next phase of their eternal life. And so for them, the body fell asleep. They were more alive than they had ever been in their lives. And for eternity, same thing happened with my mother. My sister was there. We saw our mother do the same thing. She brushed my hand aside. She said, I thought I was being reached for so I could hold her hand. And she brushed it aside and was reaching instead. Pretty powerful stuff. So we need to be sensitive how we describe death. And especially if we're trying to learn how do we describe death for younger people or children. Because they're very concrete in their thinking. An example of that was that dear friend of ours had a tragic event in her life. She had adopted little Nancy as an infant, and Nancy passed away. You know, that's that euphemism that we use all the time because we're afraid to say her body died. At age five, when a drawstring on the hood of her coat caught in a crack on a slide on a playground at school, and she suffocated, age five. It was awful. Our whole church grieved enormously. So a few months after we had had that uh, amazing funeral for Nancy where the gospel was preached so tenderly and so powerfully, uh, Pam Heaton, a friend of the families and one of the teachers in that preschool department said, we're going to gather up a bunch of the friends that want to go and we're going to go and visit Nancy and have her birthday. So she had tried to build it up in a way that kids could understand that and what she meant was we're going to go to the cemetery and we're going to have a picnic and we're going to tell our Nancy stories and remember and be able to... Thank God that Nancy has a future in heaven and all that stuff. So Mackenzie Heaton, who's the same age as our older daughter, was in the van with Pam, and she drives into the cemetery, and Mackenzie was just indignant. She goes, Mom, where is this? Is this heaven? And Pam realized that all the things she had been trying to describe to them hadn't sunk in yet because kids can be so concrete. They haven't reached that nebulous thing where there's another place that we can't see yet object permanence and all that. So she had to explain that. I found that sometimes just using this particular phrase by saying their body fell asleep on earth, but the real them, Nancy, the soul of Nancy, the real Nancy is in heaven and she's in the loving arms and the loving care of Jesus. And for a Christian, that's true. We're not making this up. It's not a fable. It's not a legend. This is a reality, and we have evidence for that reality because of what Jesus did for us and because of his own resurrection. Paul would say it 2 Corinthians 5.8. 5 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're so grateful for that. So we often use other terms to try to describe it, and I've heard people say things that they mean well, but, well, they're a star in heaven looking down at us. No, the Bible doesn't say that at all. So let's just get back and say, what does the Bible actually say? Because it's a lot easier to just use the Bible as our source, and it's so much more encouraging to know that for those who are embraced by Christ because they've placed their faith in Him, we too can just fall asleep on earth and then be present with Him forever. Paul was using that same phrase later, so he clearly grasped that concept as well. And it's not just wishful thinking. This is healthy theology that leads to healthy psychology, because I found that those Christians who have been able to work through, as I said, the stages of grief, come out so much stronger on the other end when they know that the sting of death has been removed because of our hope in the living Lord Jesus Christ. So believers do grieve, but we grieve with hope. So says the Apostle Paul. First Thessalonians, he says that in chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, he said, we don't want you to be uninformed, other translations say ignorant, uninformed about those who sleep, meaning in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus those who have fallen asleep. There's that phrase again, in him. So falling asleep in him doesn't mean everybody in the world. It means those who have trusted him and placed their faith in Christ. And they can have that wonderful blessed assurance. So we're going to end this portion of Mark's Oreo cookie story or the Hydrox cookie, if we want to use that term, uh, by looking now at what Jesus does for the little girl. And we get to see another wonderful, enduring term right here in 41 through 43, verses 41 through 43. Holding her hand, I can just picture this. He's so tender. Holding her little hand, he said to her, Talitha Kaum. And they would have known this so specifically because they even used the language he spoke in, which was Aramaic, the more common language in that region at that time. They they remembered it. It stuck in their memory, which is why we can trust this to be accurate. Talita, Kaum. That is almost like the Aramaic equivalent to Mijita, my sweet, precious baby girl. He's so tender again. So with the lady who had been sick for 12 years, he calls her daughter, be like Pobrecita. Here it's like, oh, Mijita, little girl. There was the poor dear, and the poor little daughter. And in both cases, he was using this relational father-to-a-child kind of relationship the way he approaches her. Now let's ratchet back and look at all these principles that we can learn about a father's heart and that will help us as dads trying to establish the father's heart for our own children too. For those who have not trusted in Jesus, the gospel is foolishness. The Bible tells us that. There were people back then that laughed when Jesus said, no, no, she's only sleeping. And even today, if we were to tell this story to people, they would look at the Bible itself and probably chuckle and go, it's nice that you can believe this fairy tale nonsense. But that's a fable. This isn't real. And to them, it's foolishness. The gospel is foolishness. The fact that a man could be crucified on a cross and buried for three days... And then rise again on the third day and appear to over 500 witnesses, that sounds like foolishness to those who haven't embraced the truth based on the evidence. Which is why the gospel is so important. And the gospel is based on all this love and tenderness and compassion and authority. It's all together. That's why I like Mark's Oreo cookie approach because he's got it all in there. He doesn't come across as some legalistic person who says, Turn or burn, baby. He says, God loves you so tenderly and so much that he would long to have you as a part of his family. And all you have to do is trust him and he will invite you into that family. That's the tender heart of a God that I know and that I see in scripture. So there's God's desire. He does desire that everyone would turn to him, but that's a slash free will. He desires that, but it doesn't mean everybody's going to accept it. Since this is Father's Day, I'll use dad's as as an example, if you're like me, dads, you know that there have been times when we have told our kids at times, don't do that, you're going to get hurt. My dad did that to me. We were at a park one time in Arizona, and there's a lot of gravel, and there's a steep hill, and I was just old enough to feel like I enjoy running, and I enjoy running fast. And he said, don't run down that hill, because if you do, you're going to fall, and you're going to scrape your knees. And I must have been maybe four years old, but sometimes some lessons hurt more than others, and they stick longer, because I... I definitely remember that park and this incident because I started running anyway. I, I ignored his counsel, and I defied his uh, his good counsel to me, and I started running down this hill. Ding, 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 And I went completely out of control, and my pogo stick legs just didn't have enough speed to keep up with it. And sure enough, down I went. Scraped the skin off of my knees really badly. Then I'm crying. So he combines the authority and the teachability of that moment with tenderness. And he goes, oh, son, ah," and you could tell he's just exasperated because he had told me, but I defied his good counsel and did it anyway, and yet he still helped clean up my boo-boos and he still held me and let me cry even though I had defied him. That for me kind of crystallizes what we're seeing in Jesus and how he relates to some of these folks and how God can still relate to us today. He really does desire that we be a part of his family. He longs for that. But because of our free will, we can choose to reject it if we want to. Otherwise, it wouldn't be true love because you can't force somebody to love you. That's not love. That's terrorism. But here's the truth. Every generation thought they were the modern generation. I've noticed this as a dad, that with my own parents, man, they were so dumb when I was about 16 years old. I thought, what do you know? You know, we're all like that. The younger generation looks at the older generation. They go, what do you know? The older generation looks back at the younger generation. They go, what do you know? And then we grow up a little bit, and we look back two, three decades at our former selves, our younger selves, and we go, ooh, what did you know? You know, you didn't know anything. And then we become the older generation, and then we look back at the younger generation, and once again, we repeat that that cycle, and we go, what do you know? Every generation has that and i think it's really good to know that quite frankly the more i look into scripture the more i think i don't think any of us know a whole lot <laughs> we think we do i thought i knew a whole lot more than i did at the beginning of this thing we called a pandemic man there was so much that i didn't have a clue didn't have a clue i've learned a lot i've i've had to say got that one wrong i really missed the boat on that one and You know, we learn, we grow, we try to take in as much as we can, and we try to operate on it, and the more we know, the more we can operate on that new knowledge. But I'll never stop growing. I pray I'll never stop growing in the Lord because I pray that I'll continue to look at His Word and to have Him, through His Holy Spirit, continue to just imprint His character qualities in my life so that I keep drawing closer and closer to Him the older I get. So let me end with this. Why the Oreo cookie? Why did the Holy Spirit impress Mark to write this specific story this way with the interruption story in the middle in both sides? Well, I've boiled it down to about four principles that I think we can gain from that. Both stories about Jairus and the woman demonstrate humility that's a part of their faith. They both approach Jesus with great humility. They didn't come on their own terms at all. They were desperate, and so they were completely humble before him. Jairus, the synagogue leader who probably could have gotten either kicked out or at least chastised by his peers, he didn't care about any of that. He just humbly fell on his face before Christ. He said, I need what only you can provide right now. That's humility. Secondly, in both stories, and the woman clearly displayed humility as well. In both stories, Jesus reveals something about his unique authority, This is not the kind of authority that anybody else had at that time or in history since he had authority, not just over physical illness as in the case of the woman, but even over death itself. And I think Mark wanted to ramp it up by showing that, yes, there's one that's pretty powerful. And yet there's one that's even more powerful than that. That's the heart of the gospel. He has power over death. That's what gives us hope for eternity. And then, Another point, he doesn't treat somebody who's a synagogue leader with clout any differently than he treats this nobody woman. They're both co-equal as dearly beloved children in his sight. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To know that he's not going to sidle up somebody because they give more or they've got some title or they might be in influential leadership somewhere. No, on the contrary. He goes after the people who are the lost and the marginalized the people who understand what it means to be humble. That's why he went all the way over to the east side of the lake and cast out the demons from that guy in Gennesaret. And then also, one last thing that I noticed, Jesus paid attention to these two because of their faith. They might have only had a tiny faith, but he pays attention to people who want to have faith in him. It's like that guy, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I feel that way a lot, especially when I was growing up as A dad with young kids, constantly a struggle, lots of prayer. Lord, I believe I can do this with your help, but help me in my unbelief because I didn't really read the owner's manual that well and I don't know that I'm equipped for all that I'm being given to be in charge of as a dad. So here's what we get. If you're going to boil down this whole passage into one sentence, trust in Jesus with humility even as you face death. It's a good summary. And we can do that knowing that God will always answer our prayer if we approach Him in faith and just trust Him. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that You have shown us in such vivid stories that Mark presents for us here in Mark 5 the heart of a God who loves people that way and that much. You long to bring us life. You long to for us to be a part of your family so you can treat us as beloved children. And I long to share those stories in such a way that other people would long for you, that they would want to say yes to you and lean the full weight of their faith on you, trusting you not just for this life here on earth, but even when they do approach that time when they have to face physical death, that they can face that with faith and trust you because you have provided a way for us to live forever in your presence. Thank you. Draw as many people as you will unto yourself. I pray that many, many, many more will accept that wonderful invitation that you give so freely because of your grace for us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.